Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Uh, we have a couple new exciting things going on. One of them is that my uh, system here on Zencaster now allows me to do video as well as audio. So video will be available at movingforwardpod.com for patrons. But this episode's audio is available for free to the general public out there. And today we're talking with Jamie Paul. Say hi, Jamie. Hey there. How's it going? Pretty good. Like I said off air, I think I need a little more caffeine. So if I'm not <laughs> completely awake yet, I apologize, guys. I've got my English breakfast tea here. I feel a little British. It's all good. Uh, Jamie has generously agreed actually to do two episodes for you guys. So this one is going to be about the Andrew Yang mayoral race. Um, but the we are also going to record another one today, um, which is about his piece, Our Inbred Betters, Why Anti-Populists Should Be Furious with the Media Too. And that one will be published for the patron-only feed. All right, um, so let's kick it off without further ado. Um, Jamie, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, you've been on the pod before, just to remind everybody, he's an OG Yangster, uh, like most people in the Moving Forward community. Um, and he writes the Substack American Dreaming. Um, so tell, tell us a bit about yourself, Jamie. Uh, I've been writing, you know, and fairly active in politics for the last few years. Um, really kind of feel politically homeless, you know, big Yang supporter. Um, you know, just uh, kind of taking my writing in a more public direction in the last few months and, uh, you know, just been enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, your writing is great. I highly recommend his Substack. So that's American Dreaming. Do you want to tell everybody the domain? Yeah, it's americandreaming.substack.com. And I think you can also just search for American Dreaming on Substack, probably, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it'd probably be easier to search it on Google. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Well, um, Substacks are really, are really. Uh, I mean, they're they're taken off. There's some really popular Substacks. Andrew Sullivan's got one. Um, yeah. You know, every a lot, a lot of uh, big writers have Substacks, so it's a perfectly respectable place to be. Um, you know, I can relate to what you said about being politically homeless. I am still unsure about where I belong as a never Trump conservative, um, Yang supporter, but also Yang's political career is probably over. We'll talk about that. Maybe, maybe that's too cynical, but that's what I'm feeling right now. Um, and the Democrats, you know, like I voted for Biden, but... <laughs> What to say about this? I mean, he just pulled out of Afghanistan, which was a huge disaster. So I would really, really, really love it if the Republicans would nominate a normal, not Trumpkin Republican, because mm -hmm. then I could, you know, like if they if they nominated like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, people who literally voted to remove the guy from office and who have been publicly outspoken about Trump's fascist takeover of America's conservative movement. Um, I would be really happy to reward the Republicans for moving away from that radical side uh, by voting for that person, just like I rewarded the Democrats for moving away from socialism by voting for Biden. But yeah, that, you know, it's a, a bittersweet pill for me because I'm glad Trump's out, but I'm, be, I'm, I'm being reminded why I don't like mainstream Democrats right now. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot will depend on the uh, the midterms. If the if the Republicans run a lot of Trumpists and they run on continuing the legacy of Trump and they get beaten again convincingly, that might finally turn the tide and you know change the direction of the Republican Party. 
I mean, that would be nice. That would be nice for sure. So, Jamie, um, let's start by having you read your piece on Yang, which was uh, the title is The Lessons of New York City's Mayoral Battle. Yang's Mistakes. Andrew Yang made his fair share of mistakes and miscalculations in his run for mayor. For one, he banked too heavily on votes from the Asian and Orthodox Jewish communities, both of which he won, but blocks who typically do not turn out in high percentages. For another, Yang didn't just lean into his naturally cheerful and sunny persona. He descended to its very depths in a deep-sea diving bell. The problem was he was running in New York City, not Salt Lake City. He misjudged the mood of NYC politics and how his personality clashed with the ambient level of jaded, pugnacious, angry cynicism shrouding the city's political scene. If NYC were a person, it would be Joe Pesci from Goodfellas crossed with Patty and Selma from The Simpsons. Beaming optimism has limited appeal to a city that prides itself on assaultism. There were other mistakes that bear addressing. Campaign management. Andrew Yang decided to go conventional, hiring Tusk Strategies, the firm who ran Michael Bloomberg's successful 2009 mayoral uh, re-election bid. Yang flew to the top of the polls early on, riding name recognition and high favorability ratings, and his management ran not to lose rather than aggressively running to win. Yang was running against the establishment. Anyone could see he was facing a months-long blitz of attacks. Playing it safe was not the optimal strategy. This was his Tusk-run campaign in microcosm. Superstar comedian Dave Chappelle, Yang's friend and 2020 endorser, offered to fly to New York and do comedy shows for the campaign. But Yang's managers turned him down, saying it was too controversial. This wasn't just looking a gift horse in the mouth. It was ball-tapping it from behind and getting kicked in the chest. It was as though Andrew Yang was being advised by an actuarial textbook, Ben Stein's disembodied voice, and the still timid ghost of Union General George McClellan. Also dubious was that one of Yang's campaign managers, Sasha Ahuja, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, a critic of his, a critic of his prior to being hired, appears to have been a supporter of competitor Maya Wiley. With friends like these, who needs enemies? That Yang didn't override his foolish consultants more often shows a failure of judgment. The Israel tweet. Uh, here's a quote of the tweet. I'm standing with the people of Israel who are coming under bombardment attacks and condemn the Hamas terrorists. The people of NYC will always stand with our brothers and sisters in Israel who face down terrorism and persevere, end quote. This tweet produced an explosion of incandescent rage, and Andrew Yang trended nationally for several days after it with popular hashtags like hashtag Yang supports genocide, illustrating the utter lack of good faith and dictionaries on Twitter. Some believe this to have caused his downfall, but there's reason to believe it wasn't quite as damaging as the online blowback suggests. Yang was already well into his decline in the polls by this point, for reasons discussed further below. The fact that this tweet went over like a Roman candle in an oil refinery says more about Twitter and its users than it does about the tweet. Twitter is not real life. A recent poll shows that 75% of the U.S. is pro-Israel. While New York is a left-wing bastion, it's also home to one of the world's largest Jewish communities. Andrew Yang's Israel tweet was in no way out of sync with mainstream political thought, even among Democrats. The fury was mostly among people hostile to Yang to begin with. In hindsight, he would have been better off just not weighing in. What the hell does the mayor of New York have to do with Israel anyway? Straying from his roots. One criticism is that Andrew Yang's mayoral run lacked the spontaneity and charming weirdness that endeared people to his presidential campaign. This confuses the goals of these two campaigns. When he ran for president, Andrew Yang was a nobody with no money and few connections who ran his campaign like a scrappy startup. His mailing list was his Gmail contacts list. 
he would tell people he was running for president, and they'd respond, president of what? When he ran for mayor, he entered the race as a national public figure and frontrunner. He ran a long-shot campaign for president primarily to advance an idea, universal basic income, and he was able to do that without getting many votes. When he ran for mayor, he really was just trying to win. That's why it's hard to compare the two. Yang made mistakes. His mistakes cost him votes. But did they, on their own, cost him enough votes to lose? The media and activist class. Yang was not part of the NYC political establishment and did not dutifully climb the ladder the way city machine politics dictate. To the elite NY press who see themselves as the cool kids' table in a middle school cafeteria, Yang was this jumped-up nerd who suddenly got more popular than he ever had a right to be, and they were determined to put him back in his place. Yang also made the far left shit list during his presidential run over his outside-the-box ideas and skepticism of identity politics that often put him at odds with their orthodoxy. The New York Times began running hit pieces when Yang was just rumored to be running for mayor. Another was released on the day he formally announced, and they did not relent. It's barely exaggeration to say that nine articles in ten covering Yang were negative. A succession of non-scandals were fabricated to feed into this perpetual motion machine of anti-Yang hate. Yang visited a corner store, referring to it, as its immigrant owners do, as a bodega, the local term. This became a scandal somehow. How dare he refer to this establishment as a bodega? It's merely a convenience store. While campaigning, someone approached Yang on the street and made an off-color joke. Yang laughed nervously and signaled the interaction was at an end. Scandal. How dare his reaction not be a sanctimonious soapbox speech? In a debate, Yang cited the prevalence of street assaults perpetrated by mentally ill homeless men, saying that more resources were needed to help them, and that New Yorkers have the right to walk, to walk down the street without being brutally attacked. Scandal. Andrew Yang hates the mentally ill. Yang was asked his favorite subway stop in an interview. He answered his home stop, Times Square. Scandal. What a faux New Yorker. What's his favorite pizza joint, Sparrow? This led to a racist political cartoon in the New York Daily News, depicting Yang as the caricature of an Asian tourist in New York City, a city he's lived in for 25 years. Yang not being an authentic or real New Yorker was a constant drumbeat from the media and the left, hearkening to the bigoted trope of the perpetual foreigner, a prejudice particularly prevalent against Asian Americans. Sometimes it was online progressives whipping up bullshit, which was then picked up by journalists and run with. Other times, it was the press churning out hit pieces and the online left gleefully amplifying it into virality. The incident that perfectly distills it all was when a photo surfaced of Yang walking with a city official, likely discussing a possible endorsement, and a former New York Times reporter, saying the quiet part out loud, tweeted, I hope she pushes him into traffic. Lack of government experience. When asked what the most important attribute of a political candidate is, experience, ideology, including policy positions, or being an outsider, 28% of Democrats or Democrat-leaning voters say that experience is the most important thing, compared with only 4% of Republican and GOP-leaning voters. By virtue of having never held political office, close to a third of the electorate is unlikely to have ever considered voting for Andrew Yang as their first choice. His resume may have lost him more votes than his campaign mistakes and media-slash-online treatment combined. The Shifting Dynamics of the Race During the course of the primaries, the race shifted around the candidates in ways that may have single-handedly doomed Andrew Yang's candidacy. When he entered the race in January 2021, the U.S. and New York specifically were in the throes of the worst COVID-19 spike thus far in the pandemic. Restrictions were in effect, schools were closed, 
businesses were shuttering, people were suffering, and vaccines were not widely available yet. Andrew Yang staked himself out as the COVID recovery candidate, championing cash relief and other anti-poverty policies, COVID-specific proposals, reopening schools, and helping small businesses weather the storm. Then everything changed. Vaccines were rolled out, the weather warmed up, and COVID was beaten back. Restrictions lifted. Masks came off. Infection and death rates fell. Life returned to a semblance of normality. As the city opened up, crime began to rise. Voters routinely cited crime as their top concern. Uh, and then here I show a before and after of a couple Ipsos polls that show the shifting in the voter priorities. This shift in voter priorities tracks perfectly with the decline of Yang and the rise of Adams, the former police officer with a tough-on-crime reputation. Yang found himself without a viable lane to run in. The COVID race became the crime race, one that Yang was ill-suited for. While he pivoted, changing his rhetoric and messaging to be more crime-oriented, it wasn't enough. The race had moved out of his wheelhouse and into Adams's. If crime is your top issue, you're going to vote for an ex-cop who's been talking about crime for years, over a political outsider who just started engaging with the issue a couple months before. If the stars had otherwise aligned for Yang, had he run a better campaign, made fewer mistakes, gotten fairer treatment from the press, and had some prior government experience to put on his resume, he might have been able to overcome this. He still might not have. It probably would have been very close. Terrific. Really, really liked that. I took a whole bunch of notes. Um, so <laughs> let's start with the anti-establishment angle. Um, I think you probably know this is sort of a hobby horse of mine. It's the reason <laughs> I had you on last time, because populism, I think, is an existential threat to democracy. Um, in what sense do you think Yang was anti-establishment? And in what sense do you think maybe he was pro-establishment? Uh, can an outsider be pro-establishment? Or are you automatically an, an anti-establishment person just because of your outsider status? Um, I mean, Bernie Sanders is a consummate insider, but he's clearly mm -hmm. anti-establishment, right? So yeah. what's the difference between being a mere outsider and being anti-establishment? And why do you think people perceived Yang as anti-establishment? And what could he have done to be perceived differently? Yeah. I mean, I think... You, I, I mean, I think Andrew Yang fundamentally, is, his vision and his outlook and his policies are made to preserve everything that we should want to preserve in society. So fundamentally, he's pro-establishment. And of course, the far left are, will always criticize him for that. But he's read as an anti-establishment because he doesn't have political experience, because he has policies that are either unfamiliar or policies that don't have a clear partisan read on it. Uh, and because he is open to doing things that traditional politicians wouldn't be open to. And everything about him seems, you know, to your typical MSNBC watching, college educated Democrat, he seems weird and goofy. And they don't know how to describe that. And it just gets tagged as anti-establishment. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that for the most part. I wonder if maybe... Yang also kind of fed that narrative a little bit too much himself. You know what I mean? Because, like, I think, for example, imagine you're a person who doesn't think Yang is a real candidate. You're not going to bother to go read his book, right? Right. But you'll look at, you'll look, oh, this guy wrote a book. Okay. You'll read the blurb. You'll look at the cover. The war on normal people, right? That sounds not just anti-establishment, but borderline populist, 
right? I mean, now of course there's the re- there's a reason the saying "Don't judge a book by its cover" exists, right? And as people who have actually read his book, you and I know that it was actually a very pro status quo message. His message was basically, "Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater." The rise of populism is due to automation. Um, is actually more due to automation than it is due to outsourcing, which is what politicians tend to blame it on, especially populist politicians, right? Um, And all we need to do is upgrade liberalism uh, in order to take into account this new technology, right? That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should do so in order to preserve our democracy, in order to preserve capitalism. I mean, it couldn't have been a more pro status quo argument. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's also pro little guy. And that runs in the face of the far left and all right. right narrative, which is that the only way to be pro little guy is to be anti status quo. Right. So this, the, the uh, yeah. MSNBC pundits and New York times writers are the people who most needed to hear Yang's message because he's telling them, look, this is the piece of the puzzle that you're missing. You're missing it because you are stuck in thinking about politics like it's still 1990. Um, you don't understand modern technology. You don't have any experience working in business. You don't know why entrepreneurs are automating. Um, and and you're too focused on winning the next battle. And that's why you're losing the war. Right? Yeah, they needed I'm- to hear that message, but they didn't. And I, what could Yang have done to... You know what I mean? Like he needed to make that aspect of his argument, in my opinion, publicly I mean, more. Yang's, and it would have had to be during yeah. his presidential run, obviously, because right. it would be very irrelevant to the mayoral run. Yeah, um, I mean, Yang's Yang's emergence as a political figure in the 2020 primaries, he, he I mean, he wasn't a politician and it showed. And he leveraged the world he knew, which was the business world and the and the startup world. And the way he talks about things it sounds very in line with that, you know, but most people aren't plugged into that community. So, you know, if he, if he would have tailored his rhetoric in a way that would have sounded more political, maybe he would have gained more traction among those establishment types. Mm -hmm. Maybe also he would never have built like a cult following either. So it's hard to say he, he was, you know, given the, given those stats that I cited, which when I was researching this piece, you know, in terms of, how much democratic voters value experience. I always suspected that, but I had never seen it quantified. Given that, he could never really, I mean, a Trump-like figure could never win a democratic presidential primary. Enough Democrats will not vote for someone who is who has no political experience, that I think that would doom anyone, however traditional they sounded. So, you know, and what he what Yang did going into the mayoral primary is he took what worked in his presidential run, which was his personality. He had sky high favorability ratings because of his personality. So he took that and made that the focus. He had just as robust a policy platform and he was talking about policy just as much, but it became like the central focus of his messaging and his rhetoric became like this sort of rah-rah optimism cheerleading kind of thing. And while that was the thing that worked best for him at the presidential level, I think he misread how different the political culture of New York City is than the country overall. If he was most other places, I think that would have been a winning message. But in New York City, it's almost like you're unserious if you're too happy. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. The 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 cynicism of New York definitely played into it, especially with a lot of bad things going on, like COVID and and the increase in crime and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it's great that you picked up on that aspect of the messaging because that's something that I haven't seen anybody else um and their analysis of why Yang lost talking about. Um, I think you're completely right about that. So, are you saying that? If I'm hearing you correctly, you agree with me that Yang should have done more to not be perceived as anti-establishment, but also maybe there was nothing he could do in the Democratic Party as an outsider that would have worked. Um, that basically, this this is something that drives me crazy about the Democrats, that basically um, they are party, not just party over country, but party over ideology um, which is what the which is what the Republican Party is becoming now too. It's quite funny. You get called a, a rhino for supporting the policies that you know a Republican supported before Donald Trump at this point, um, and it's kind of the same dynamic. So it's like whatever the party wants is good because the party wants it. We're not interested in having a conversation about ways to improve our platform. We're not interested in having a conversation about ways to expand or reform our coalition we just expect you to serve the party um and 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 that's all there is to it i mean the democratic party reflects their voters and while the leftmost 10 percent of society is extraordinarily loud and disproportionately influential most of their voters are still moderates and because of that the democratic party who like all political parties are all sane ones wants to win above all else they realize that you can't cater to 10%, especially a 10% who doesn't even vote that often, and then lose elections. So, you know, if those demographics change, the demographic, the, the, the Dem party will change with it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I actually think that Yang is a moderate. Um, and 538 yeah. even described him as one of the three conservative frontrunners. Um, it's kind of like it's difficult to place Yang because he's he's like more progressive than a moderate but he's more moderate than a progressive. And then he has these policies that are just not even on the chart and just a sort of outside the box approach, which makes it hard for him to find a lane. And he had his lane in running for running as the COVID recovery. Um, but he was, he's never going to out cop a cop, you know, <laughs> he, he's never going to like out, out, you know, city machinery, you know, someone who's been in the machinery. So yeah, no, I, I think your point about not having a lane is relevant. I mean, I said that at the time during the presidential election on this podcast, mm-hmm. I said that to Corey. I was like, you cannot win a Democratic primary by just getting far lefties who hate the Democratic Party to vote for you. And by just getting, you know, alt-right um, Trump supporting Dem- Democrats, basically, to vote for you. Um, or if it's in an open primary, maybe you could get a couple of all right, Trump supporting Republicans to vote for you or independents. Um, that's not a coalition. Yeah, I mean, if you want to win. He needed to get the votes of normal mainstream Democrats in order to win the primary. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is it just without a lack, with a lack of experience, there was simply no way he was ever going to get those votes? Is there nothing he could have said or done differently? I think if he did everything damn near perfectly and was treated better by the press, he would have had a chance, but he could have still lost just with the crime thing alone. 
Oh yeah, no, uh, I mean in the, yeah, moving 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 on. I I don't think he was going to win for president, right? But I'm wondering, you know, like you said, um, you know, he went into the mayoral race as a well-known front runner because of his presidential run. So right. if he had better made the case for his worldview as a pro status quo or status quo preserving worldview. Um, if, if he took that lane from the very beginning and he was super vocal about crime from the very beginning, if his big thing was crime from the very get go, because I, I feel like the average voter is not really plugged into the media. So if you bang a drum for months, it will filter down to them. But if you pivot and you only have a month to make your new message, that's not going to reach most of the voters. If he had come out from the very get go, all about tough on crime, he would have been able to compete maybe with Eric Adams for that vote. And he in would the have been mayoral race step. or in the presidential race. Mayoral. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm trying to be extra clear here. I completely agree with you about the crime thing. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, I want to move on to all the many ways that the, the far left actually is not really part of Yang's lane. But I think right. the problem was he was perceived as a anti-establishment populist lefty kind of person right with maybe yeah, just if you want to give maybe like a market money, that, socialist yeah. take instead of a democratic socialist bernie sanders take right that's the way a lot of people right. perceived him we know that's not who he actually is um but he was perceived that way and so i agree about the crime thing in the mayoral race but i mean like if he had better made the case for himself in the presidential race as, i see what you mean right as um somebody who was trying to save the status quo from populists was trying to de-radicalize populists by addressing their concerns in a way that was compatible with preserving our liberal institutions. If he had made that argument instead of just, I want to give everybody money, I want to give everybody money, I want to give everybody money. um, Yes, you're right. He might not have gotten as much of a cult following, but I'm not so sure about that. I think he still might have because I don't think his cult following came from his mainstream interviews. His cult following came from like the Rogan podcast, right? True, true. So he could have continued to say what he said in the Rogan podcast. But like in his mainstream interviews and in his debates, if he had better sold himself as as the anti anti establishment person, the person in the room who understood because of his life experience why populism is on the rise and how to quash quell it, I started to say quash it. I'll say quell right. it, <laughs> right? Because quash it makes it sound like we're going to kill him. We're not going to do that. We're going to make them happy, right? So that they stop being populists. If 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 he had done that, then since his presidential race had established him in the public eye going into the mayoral race, maybe that would have made him a little bit less of an outsider as far as the democratic establishment and the media elite were concerned. I think in hindsight, I think you're right. If he would have done that, it would have put him in much better stead. And he would be read as someone who was kind of, you know, somebody who was proposing seemingly radical solutions, but to prevent an outcome even more radical. So he would have been sort of like a lesser of two evils from an establishment point of view. But instead, he ended up getting read as, you know, (laughs) the Joker, you know, wanting to throw fistfuls of dollar bills out the uh, helicopter, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, well, I'm pro-establishment. And I don't know, like if he had sold it right, I don't think he would have been perceived as radical even. I I think he would have been perceived as somebody, the way he should have sought to be perceived is somebody who is trying to upgrade the liberal status quo in order Mm -hmm. to preserve it from its enemies on the outside, 
right? Um, that's kind of what like uh, FDR did, right? During the New Deal. If he yeah. hadn't stepped in and created you know, these policies that I as a right winger am not particularly fond of, right? I still nevertheless would admit that if he hadn't done that at a time when socialism and communism were very popular, um, we might not have been able to preserve the private ownership of capital that we have to this day. And that probably would have been we, like the U.S. instead of becoming, you know, the richest, most powerful country in the world would have gone, you know, downhill fast if it weren't for that. Right. And so yeah. he needs to be seen as like an FDR reformer um, and not even as far left as FDR, but just a different kind of reformer for a different time. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it is easy to say this in hindsight, but I mean, it certainly would have helped him. Um, well, I said at it at the time. time. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, no, I go back and listen to early episodes of Moving Forward. I was like, Corey, he needs to win mainstream Democrats. He needs to stop selling his yeah, ideas yeah. like he's only appealing to the left. He needs to explain why conservative and moderate and right-wing mm -hmm. Democrats should support him. I was saying that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess from Andrew Yang's own perspective, if I'm trying to imagine his mindset, it may have been difficult for him to see that at the time. Um, you know, I think yeah. he did he, he did as good a job as I think you could expect someone with no political experience to do, and someone for whom most of the time he didn't even have consultants or anything. So let's move on to the Israel tweet, because I really sure. liked your take on that. Most people are convinced that that was the reason he lost. I agree with you that he probably shouldn't have weighed in. Like, why? I mean, maybe the right. way his consultants thought about it was like, there are a lot of Jewish people in Israel, in Israel, of course. There are a lot of Jewish people in New York City. Um, in fact, I understand it has the second most um, uh, number of Jewish people in the world after Israel itself, right? right? right. Um, and so he might have thought that he was trying to, you know, grow his base and, and appeal to that demographic. And maybe he even mm -hmm. got some of those voters as a consequence of that. Uh, so that might have been the rationale. But I agree with you that he probably shouldn't have weighed in. Um, that said, yeah, I mean, if you looked at him, you in don't the polls, think that it was, was the reason he lost. By then. Right. Yeah. Well, well exactly. So, so speak a little more about that. Why do, why is it that you think that wasn't what did him in? Well, the, well, the, the shift from COVID to crime was already underway by that point, And that was already reflected in the polls. He was already three weeks to a month into his decline at that point. So it, he may has he may have well put that tweet out as an attempt to maybe reverse things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that that wasn't the kind of tweet you put out when you're far in ahead, out out in first place, and you're just sort of coasting towards victory. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it kind of was like a little bit of a chance. You know, roll the dice to do that, and obviously it didn't work out. It, it probably lost him more votes than it gained him, but I don't think it lost him much, and it certainly didn't lose him anywhere near enough to lose. Because he was already on his, he was already headed toward, you know, defeat unless something changed at that point. Yeah, yeah. You you pointed out Twitter is not real life, and I looked it up. Seventy percent of Americans support Israel, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not a crazy position to take. Um, no. Joe Biden, who was the actual Democratic nominee for president and became president, supports Israel, right? So the 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 anti-Semitic hard left. Um, is just way out of step with the actual per the actual average person in this country on that issue, and really probably most issues. Um, 
And you said that the people who attacked him for it were people who already didn't like him. So I think you're right. I mean, so like AOC saw an yeah. opportunity to be like, oh, this guy's not not just a libertarian Trojan horse, which he had already called him. Right, he wants to kill he, babies. He, 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 yeah, exactly. He, he, he's pro killing brown babies, killing brown babies. Um, this is like the same rhetoric you see from like uh, pro-life people on the right. Yeah, no, I mean, they're two sides of the same coin as far as I'm concerned. They're, I mean, they're, 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 they're awful people. And then, and then look like recently AOC, she voted against that bill. It got like 416 yeses and 11 no's or something like that. And she was one of the 11 no's when she voted against expanding visa rights for, for immigrants who are fleeing Afghanistan after we abandoned that country, our allies and left them to be taken over by the Taliban. These women are going to be brutally forced into sex slavery. LGBT people are going to be killed. And and she, supposed progressive, doesn't want to let these poor people immigrate to the United States to escape that? Why? Why not? Is it just because she agrees with the Taliban that we're the great Satan and she doesn't want us to have that diplomatic victory? I mean, there was also the matter of she was railing against the defense budget, which went, you know, some of a tiny, tiny portion goes to Israel. And then when it came time to vote on it, she voted, I think, just present. She didn't vote against it. You know, oh, yeah, that was a different vote. This one I'm talking about was a yeah. no vote. And it was also a no right. vote on just expanding um, the, the security at the Capitol after it was attacked by a Trump supporting mob. Right. I mean, the number of the number of lefties who I see defending that saying, well, you know, we support we support rioting and we support violence and we support criminality and sedition and terrorism um, because they do. Right. They supported it when it when Antifa was doing it and they support it when when Trump supporters do it, apparently. It's like right? blind tribalism. That's, that's, makes that's, that's, that, that's the uh, the oppressed speaking to the oppressor. That's talking to power, man. That's good shit, isn't it? It's like if you're too tribal all your principles go out the window because everything is like, well, which side did it? And then all of a sudden you have two separate sets of rules. You know, it's fine when it's fine when you do it during a BLM protest, but it's, it's you can't do it if you're a Republican at the Capitol. And, um, you know, it's just part of how toxic discourse has become. So um, the leftist op- opposition to Andrew Yang, right? Because we, we keep talking about how he has heterodox ideas um, within the Democratic Party, who lacks experience. I mm-hmm. don't think that those are the reasons why the leftists oppose him, why AOC opposes him, right? Uh, and not just opposes him, but... but I mean, you could write a whole piece on that. So, uh, you know, I didn't capture every aspect of that. Oh, I know. That's why I'm asking you now blurb. to talk about it, right? Because, like, yeah. what... He's supposed... Like, he, the part of the reason he couldn't find a lane is because he's not mm-hmm. pro-establishment. He's not a moderate, really. He was ultimately... They characterized him as a conservative in some places, but... But he was really kind of angling for the progressive lane, actually, I think, in the in the um, in the presidential race. Right. He and was, that kind of set was. him up as a progressive in the minds of voters in the mayoral race, even if he maybe pivoted a little bit. Right. Right. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why the left, you know, why he's had trouble with the left uh, right off the bat. He's from the business world. So that that puts him right off on the wrong foot with them. They, they don't like anyone from the business world. Uh, the other thing is the sort of lies and misrepresentations spread about his model of UBI gutting, so-called gutting the welfare system. 
that really has, I mean, that seems to be the only thing that they've learned about Andrew Yang. You know, that and the fact that he's so-called a billionaire, even though he's not. (laughs) And it's, it's like, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into, you know, arguments with people online, people on the left, progressives who are anti-Andrew Yang, and everything they think they know about Andrew Yang is just not true. And every time you correct one thing, they just like, it's a papa mold. They just go right, go right to the next misconception. I think it's because they know it's not true and they don't care. I yeah. don't, like, so I guess what I'm saying is it would be an easier fix if the problem was just that they don't know the facts. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is, no. like, let's talk about like, why don't they like people from the business world? Because they have a worldview that's fundamentally hostile to business. They think that businesses are evil and bad, mm-hmm. right? And that everything should be a co-op and it shouldn't be an opt-in co-op. You should be forced to make everything a co-op, right? I mean, I, th- I think fundamentally, fundamentally, the threat that they perceive from Andrew Yang is the same reason why pro-establishment people, if he messaged correctly, would have embraced him. They see Andrew Yang and his politics and his policies as being what could rescue our system. And they want the system torn down and replaced with something else. So are the populists just are the populist progressives just smarter than the mainstream establishment? Because they saw through Yang's cynical ploy to characterize himself as a progressive, but the establishment didn't. Well, they are more educated for, you know, uh, that's for one. Typically they tend to be more educated. Well, maybe more educated than a, than a self-identified moderate voter, but not more educated than a pundit on MSNBC or a New York Times columnist. Less so. No. True. Um, but the, but the, you know, the people in the highest level of the media also sort of, you know, they're people for whom society has worked out pretty well and they have a natural inclination not to want to fundamentally change too much. So they'll opt for every kind of symbolic thing you can do, but they, they're not too keen on really big transformational policy changes. Um, yeah, but, I, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And, and, and so it sounds like we're agreeing. I, I think that, um, thank you for that, by the way, that did help me to see it. So it's, it's what you answered my question. Why would the mainstream media and the democratic establishment not see what Yang was trying to do when the progressives that Yang was in theory trying to court did see mm-hmm. that? Right. Um, I mean, it's not like Yang was keeping it a secret. I mean, he wrote a whole book about it. He spelled out exactly what his case was. Um, but could his mistake have been that he was trying to get the votes of people who were never going to like him and he was failing to try to appeal to the voters who might have actually liked him? Yeah. I mean, I wrote that later in that piece on the mayoral race that I think if you're not a dyed in the wool leftist yourself, if you're not a Bernie Sanders or a Bernie Sanders type candidate, you should not even waste any time or effort or appeals to the left. If they vote for you, that's an added bonus, but you should price in their opposition from the get-go and go after the votes that you can get. Yeah, see, no, I don't y- think- Yang should have hired you and me <laughs> instead of those fancy Bloomberg guys. <laughs> he should have. He should have. <laughs> well, all right. You know, it's it's easy. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. But right. I did say that. I did say that part of it in advance. Okay. Yeah, no, I like I like um, I like your take on all of that. I completely agree about not pandering to the left. In fact, let's talk about that for a second, because as far as I can tell, 
you know, um, the, the, the stereotype of the left is that they're, they're, um, they're just too idealistic and they're not practical and pragmatic enough. But I think it's worse than that. I think they are deeply cynical and apathetic. Um, I, I don't, I don't think, you know, like, um, liberals, liberals believe actually that government can be a good force for good in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the left thinks that. I think that the left believes that you need a dictatorship of the proletariat and that you're not going to get that through the democratic process. I think that their goal is to just throw a hand grenade into anybody who is trying to practically improve society through our system in order to bring about accelerationism and hopefully the downfall of, you know, modern civilization, which they naively think will lead to a utopia. Well, what's weird to me, what's weird to me is that the leftmost 10, 15% of society, they have a bunch of ideas at any given moment that they're pushing. Some of those ideas do eventually become normalized. And at that point, they move they even They start opposing further. them. And they start moving further. And that makes me suspect there's something psychological going on here where they have made sort of sniping at society from the sidelines into a way of life. Like they're like political hipsters. They want to hate everything. And they want to say society sucks. And they want to say that the answers are something so radical they can never be done. So they, it lets them off the hook. All they can do is criticize. They're, they're never in the spotlight. It they're lets always them pointing off the hook people. for their personal mistakes in life. Because it oh, lets it's them, not, it's it not lets their them off fault. the hook for sucking at politics. Because both, they both. can play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It lets and they them can always the play it off as. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I actually think that that was helpful to me because that is one distinction, I think, between the far left populists and the alt right populists. I see the Trump supporting alt right populists as, you know, uh, sadly, you know, to be politically incorrect, like kind of losers who blame their failures on other people. They want to blame them on Democrats and liberals and and corporate evil corporations that are keeping the little guy down. They want to blame them on the swamp in Washington. They want to blame them on black and brown immigrants and foreign workers, et cetera. Right. Because they don't want to accept personal responsibility, which is the actually conservative thing to do um, for pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and improving their own goddamn lives. Right. But, but they do still seem to think that through the democratic process, they can achieve something. They, they, you know, like, oh, we just got to get Trump in there. We got to get Trump in there. He's going to build the wall. He's going to build the wall and he's going to make everybody bring back all those jobs and he's going to bring back coal, right? They really think that, you know, through their voting, they can get something done. That does differentiate them from the populist far left, who I agree. I don't think they really actually, because like you said, if they really wanted any of these solutions, then they wouldn't turn against them the second they become embraced by the Democratic Party official platform. It seems to me like there is, for some degree, you're seeing very educated people on the left who have sort of outgrown religion using politics as religion. And they want this sort of eternal struggle. And that eternal struggle entails sort of, you know, progress treadmills. Every time there's progress, you have to pretend there's been no progress. Every time you advance the popularity of something, you have to stake out a new claim, more radical, so that you could always be, it's, it's always something you haven't yet achieved and may never achieve. In a sense, I mean, and obviously this is a lot of armchair psychoanalysis, but in a sense, you get the impression that they're afraid to win. They're, they're afraid 
to get to the point where they've achieved all their goals because they've jumbled up their identity and their self-worth and their meaning and purpose in life in these struggles. And without these struggles, what would they be left with to fight? Yeah. And the education is another difference too. Um, I would prefer to call the far left populace overeducated because I think that you can get a, you have to be, you have to get a lot of formal education to be that stupid sometimes. Um, but (laughs) you know, and I say that as someone who spent 10 years in college myself. Right. But like, you know, I mean, there's not, everything is, is, you know, real life is not ivory tower. You guys, seriously, you know, things, uh, the the common mistake of the overeducated is that they compare the you know the status quo to some ideal, right? As opposed to comparing it to other real life status quos, because the scientific framework, as opposed to uh, you know an armchair philosopher framework, the scientific framework is okay. That hypothesis sounds well and good. Let's try it, right? And then when you try leftism, it never fucking works, right? And they don't want to admit that. So they keep comparing it to this communism has never been tried ideal instead of comparing it to real life outcomes in countries that have attempted Mm it. Yeah, I mean, the ideal way to, the most effective way I can think of to approach politics is to lay out a bunch of concrete, quantifiable policy goals and to work towards those goals. And when you achieve those goals, see how they work. And if the si- and if everything, if those problems have been effectively remedied, you know, good job, move on. <laughs> you shouldn't want politics to be this eternal struggle of good versus evil. It's just like, that's just no way to live. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that, um, you know, like the Democratic Socialists of America's um, has officially said that they support social democratic policies like um, mm-hmm. Medicare for all, for example, as a step towards socialism, not as an end goal. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you can see that happening in the Overton window. If you talk to a leftist, they I, I'm gaslit as a right winger all the time because I'm advocating what really is actually just reform to our existing mixed economy. It's not even that right wing. It's kind of centrist, frankly. Right. I'm advocating reforming the centrist social democratic mixed economy we already have. <laughs> right. But that makes me far right. Right. Because they supposedly our Overton window is skewed so far right, right that um, that that we don't we we lack all perspective and we don't realize that the Democrats are actually right wing, et cetera. But it's actually the other way around, isn't it? I mean, an actual far right party wouldn't have public schools. They wouldn't be saying let's do charter schools and vouchers. They would have no public schools. They wouldn't be trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. They would not have them. Period. They wouldn't exist. There would be there would literally be no welfare state. We wouldn't be trying to reform it through a UBI. There would be zero welfare, right? That's what an actual yeah. far right country would look like. As far mm-hmm. right as a, a viable party can get in the United States or any any modern democracy is centrist. Mm-hmm. Right? And so yeah. they, what they're doing is they're now calling the social liberal compromise that, that brought about the FDR welfare state. They're calling that fascism now. It's all about moving everything further and further and further left. Yeah, I mean, the, the way the terms get abused, it's like nobody even knows what anything means because you'll get people on the left defining socialism as like the economy of Sweden, which is not socialism. But then all at the other... At the other end, you get people on the right who would like, you know, call someone like Joe Manchin a socialist. 
So it's like nobody knows what it means. It means whatever anyone wants it to mean. Well, and that that, that brings us back to the conversation about the education difference. I, I, I think right. lit- really this is what I honestly, honestly God think. The only difference between a Trumpkin and a Bernie Bolshevik is that the Bernie Bolshevik went to college. Like their worldviews are actually quite similar. I, I, I was arguing um, I was arguing with a Trump supporter um, uh, on Twitter recently as a never Trump conservative who wants the Republican Party to become more like John McCain and Mitt Romney and Ronald Reagan again. And this mm-hmm. person was saying, calling me a rhino, <laughs> right? Be- because and, and but then they started using terms. They said forever wars. We need to get out of the forever wars. That's literally a, a Tulsi Gabbard Democrat talking point. And they they said they said um, corporate oligarchs. We have to worry about the corporate oligarchs. So it was like, dude, that is corporate oligarch is Bernie Bolshevik for capitalist. That's what it is. Yeah. And the, the, a, another guy another guy said um, we we need to stop the Marxist corporations because they're Marxist because they they're so woke now and that makes them Marxist. We have to stop the Marxist corporations and the only way we can do it is to take back ownership of those corporations in the name of the workers. <laughs> I mean these are like like the, 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 oh, but, but he said that he has to do that to stop Marxism, man. <laughs> I mean they they basically are just socialists who are so ignorant they don't know they're socialists. That's what they are. They, 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 it seems like a mixture of far left on economy and far right on culture. You know, it's national a lot of people, socialism. It's Nazism. That's what it is. There's a lot of people, especially younger people, who don't really know much about politics. And because everything is becoming political, they think culture wars is really all of politics. So they're against wokeness and they think that in itself is a political worldview. But like, where does that leave you on taxes, on abortion, on on all these other, you know, there's a million different issues. If you don't have a coherent position on anything, but like, I hate political correctness, you should not weigh in on politics and learn some more. And now Tucker Carlson is raving against corporations. He's raving against the business world um, more than Rachel Maddow ever did. Of the two of them, Rachel Maddow is more pro-business at this point. You see what I'm saying? Let's, yeah. let's, I don't let's even know a, let's... what to make of Carlson these days. <laughs> he's a, he, I don't know. I think he started out cynically pandering to those idiots in order to make money. And now he maybe he really believes it. If you say it enough, you start to believe it. Um, let's not, bring it back to Yang for a second. You brought up a, a few specific examples that I thought were great. A lot of people heard about these little scandals. Scandal! Um, <laughs> but they didn't really know what the real th- They only knew the media's narrative and not the truth. Um, so that bodega thing, he called it a bodega because the immigrant owners themselves call it a bodega. This is a perfect example of like overeducated people, um, appropriating the, the, the causes of real normal people who are struggling in the name of their ridiculous Ivy league ideas. I know it's like, there's this thing that I've observed in city politics all around the country in big cities which is people are never satisfied with the way their cities are run politically. And yet at the same time, they're super hostile to anyone who doesn't bear every little cliched affectation of the most quintessential local person. If you give off any vibes as being like an outsider, they can't handle that. And yet what they have and have always had, they think is shit. So it's like, it's like, 
you know, th there's that disconnect there. And, and in the New York mayoral race, perhaps more than any race I've ever followed, there was a lot of weird gatekeepery behavior over like what isn't an, what is and isn't a real New Yorker. But like New York is one of those, New York is almost like America in microcosm. America is mm -hmm. a country of immigrants. New York is a, is a city where a huge percentage of New Yorkers probably moved there at some point. You know, right, that's but, what it, makes but, New so, but so to them, dynamic. what a New Yorker is is how is how a hipster in Brooklyn or the Upper West Side talks. And the rest right. of the the rest of the of the city isn't real. They only exist in order so in order to give them power, so that they can claim they can claim the mantle of diversity in the name of their homogenous understanding of the city. Yeah, I, I overheard some conversation with one of the uh, popular New York City morning show hosts and they were talking about how well yeah yang grew uh, yang has lived in new york city for 25 years but he's from manhattan they're not real new york <laughs> you know so i mean it's, it's like the I, I, it's like it's kind of the heart of new york <laughs> i know <laughs> good god all right um yang hates the mentally ill let's talk about that one a little more why does Yang hate the mentally ill? Well, he he phrased it. It wasn't the optimal phrasing when he was in that debate. He said something to the effect of, you know, he phrased it in a way that was like ripe for being clipped and taken out of context, uh, uh, taken out of context. He said something along the lines of, you know, mentally ill people have all these have all the rights of everyone else, et cetera, et cetera. You know who else has rights? everyone else to walk down the street and not be punched in the face or something along those lines. Someone, mm -hmm. a few people clipped that, put it on social media and they just clipped that and they made it out to be like, he was saying that the rights of everyday people should have to be competing with the rights of the mentally ill. And that he was suggesting rights be taken away from the mentally ill and given to normal people, something like that, which if you listen to the whole thing in context, but even then what was right, would it be the right to punch strangers in the face? I mean, but, well, there, but, but again, if you're if you are on the actual far left, you probably right. think that if a mentally ill person punches a stranger in the face, that the that the government shouldn't do anything about it. Well, first and foremost, it's nothing they have to worry about because there's nothing more indicative of actual privilege than being in the far left, <laughs> because these people never live in these in these neighborhoods. You know, they're tweeting from their their the, you know their lush bedrooms and their parents' mansions in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, this is something they never have to deal with anyone who, I mean, I've never lived in a big city, but I take the, I take that, you know, threat seriously. I would, I, I went to school in a big city and, you know, with a lot of homeless people in Philadelphia and, you know, it, there wasn't an epidemic at the time of people being assaulted, but you know, that is something that obviously you have to keep that under control. And that's just common sense. It's all these little common sense things that it builds but up you, and it just you, like, simply suggest that criminals should be prosecuted, arrested and prosecuted for their criminal acts. Right. That makes you a fascist now. Right. Unless and the people being prosecuted are Republicans. Even then, I don't think they, I mean, <laughs> I don't know about, I, I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, like I said, I, I, I've been seeing a lot of lefties defend the assault on the Capitol. Well, that's just really? them expressing their frustration at the system. Blah, blah, blah. That's not bad. I, I haven't heard that. Well, oh. No, the, according to them, the according to them, the real problem is the rich people who worked up all those poor working class white people from Appalachia into a rage. 
and that the the criminals themselves are completely blameless victims. Um, caricature of an Asian tourist. Actually, no, let's talk a little more about the mentally ill thing, though, because I feel like we didn't. So Yang made a perfectly reasonable statement, which was. The law still applies to you, even if you're homeless. <laughs> and they took that right. out of context to make it sound like he was anti-homeless people. And what, right. what and he was suggesting throwing them in the homeless. He wanted he wanted to yeah, he wasn't suggesting throwing them in prison or anything. He was suggesting to massively increase the amount of psychiatric resources and expand the number of, uh, you know, psychiatric beds, psychiatric uh, resources and so forth, so that people who are struggling and who are homeless can be given a place to stay and can be given the resources that they could, you know, try to get their lives back. Together. Yeah. And to talk about the the shifting uh, goalposts again, remember, um, well, I mean, you and I are both too young to have been alive when it happened, but I remember when leftists used to complain that Ronald Reagan kicked all the homeless people out of the um, institutions, right? They put them all on the street. Oh my God, it's so awful. I know that the institutions weren't great either, but at least they had a roof over their head. At least they had food. Now they're all out on the street. And now Yang's saying like, okay, let's put them back into a modern version of, of an right. institution that actually respects their humanity and treats them better than the old ones did. And that makes him bad, right? It's <laughs> None of it makes any sense. No. Asian tourist, the character, like, they, like was it the New Yorker? One of the one of the newspapers or magazines over there literally had a cartoon where it yeah. was an, a, a racist caricature, like like those the, like that Dr. Seuss book from decades ago that was canceled because you know it had racist caricatures by today's right. standards. But modern leftist media publishes a cartoon with a just as racist a caricature of an Asian man who's an who's uh, running for mayor, and that's fine apparently. Yeah, it, it was the Daily News, and uh, it was all based on him answering. He was asked what his favorite subway stop was, and he said the one that was closest to his home, which was Times Square. Apparently, saying Times Square makes you a non-authentic New Yorker, and then they just tied that in with him being Asian and went for the Asian, you know, the, the anti-Asian trope there. Well, that's a good point that it's closest to where he lives. So the idea that they think that only tourists go to Times Square, they forget that there are humans who live there. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> it's a city. It's, it's one of those things everywhere. where like a bunch of assholes on the Internet just got really mad about it because they already hated Yang. So they whipped it up into trending online. And sadly, a percentage of what journalists use to get their stories is like what's trending on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that former New York Times reporter who said. Uh, that she wanted Yang to get pushed into traffic. Ha ha ha! Just a joke. Don't take it too seriously. That you know what that sounds like to me. That sounds like alt right trolls. That sounds like something Trump would say or like Trump Trump supporter would say, doesn't it? And and then the excuse is the same thing. Oh well, I didn't really mean it. Don't take me literally. Well, their initial reaction was someone had pushed back against that in the thread, and they told that person they should go jump in the Hudson. And then only after it started spreading around and like this person, it could if you know consequences could be essentially exacted for it did they delete it and then issue an apology yeah well good gracious okay so so you think the single biggest cause of yang losing the mayoral race was the shift from covid to crime that's my take i do you think that if, if, it, if it hadn't shifted to crime he might have been able to ride that early lead that he had due to name recognition etc uh to the finish line 
Yeah, the, the last time I was on your show, I was warning that his position in the polls was not secure and that it would get a lot tighter. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought if even if it didn't shift to the crime race, it would have gotten a lot tighter. But I think he would have won. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think he would have won even with all the other mistakes if it be- if it remained the COVID race, if the vaccine never came out. Uh, and with it shifting to the crime race, almost everything else would have had to have been perfect for him to win. Interesting. Why do you think he did okay with the COVID race narrative? Is it just because it was kind of a, an unusual circumstance and so people were a little more open to a yeah. celebrity who was outside the box? Well, in times of crisis, people are more open to policy ideas that strike them as unusual or even radical. And so Yang's outsideriness seemed like it was just what we needed. But crime isn't a you crisis know, for New York. It's just a Tuesday. Right. <laughs> that kind of makes sense, actually. Like, I, mean, I mean, whether or not crime is a crisis, it's the devil you know. It's the devil you know, exactly. It's, more, it's not just, a, it wasn't so much that COVID was a crisis. It was like unusual circumstances. Right. And, and, and everyone had become pretty much convinced over the last couple of years that the cash relief really helped a lot of people over COVID. Got and it. Andrew Yang was promising that. And, you know, so. Well, I think you might be right. You know, I think you might be right. All right, Jamie, thank you for this conversation. I'll remind the listeners that if you are a patron of Moving Forward, you can listen to Jamie and I discuss another article of his, which will be on the patron feed. We're also um, recording today, but it'll probably get released next week. It's our inbred betters. Why anti-populists should be furious with the media too. That should be a good one. Um, all right, Jamie, any, any final words? Remind people where they can go to subscribe to your subset. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you want to subscribe to my Substack, it's americandreaming.substack.com. Okay. Awesome, Jamie. I, I, I let's, uh, oh, and as we say, do you want to say it? Moving forward is my gumbo. Yeah, it is. It's everybody's gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.